This week, the title is Learning Through Failure. I put this up Tuesday morning out at the West Campus, and Jonathan Rogers, who works for me, walks in the room before anybody else, and he goes, oh, great, that's a great way to start the morning. Failure. Let's talk about failure. But here's what I know. Every guy in the room can relate to failure, right? You've all failed, uh, some, <laughs> some worse than others, uh, some more often than others, but every guy in this room has failed at something at some point in his life. So failure is something that we're all aware of, comfortable with. We just don't like it, right? We, we hate failure. We despise failure, and we do everything in our power to avoid it, right? I don't want to fail. And I don't wake up in the morning longing to fail. I, I, I want to be successful in whatever degree that may look like in my life at this point in my life. I don't want to fail. But here's what I know. I grow through failure. You grow through failure. Um, most of the growth in my life has come through some kind of failure. And the same thing is true of you. And here's why. Because every time you fail, it's like a wake-up call, especially as a believer. Because it forces you to ask a number of questions. One being, where is God in the midst of this? And I guarantee every time you face a failure, whether it's financial, relational, business, you begin to question God. God, why did you do this? Why are you doing this? Why have you left me, forsaken me? Why are you mad at me? What did I do to offend you? And you begin to ask questions of God. And then you may even doubt God, his love, his grace, his mercy. But it definitely gets your attention. When everything is going well for me, when everything is going great, I don't really have much of an attention span. I'm just like all over the map. I'm easily distracted. Everything's wonderful. Life is wonderful. But you throw a wrench into that, and suddenly you've got my attention. Again, it could be health, finances, um, relationship with your wife, your kids. It gets your attention. But why? Why is failure one of the key ways that we grow? Well, Winston Churchill is one of my favorite people of history, and I love this quote from him. He says, success is stumbling from failure to failure without, without loss of enthusiasm. Now, if you've ever read anything about Churchill, he spoke from experience. This guy was failure incarnate. I mean, he failed and failed and failed. Even as prime minister, he was often considered a failure. It took him years to become the prime minister. His own party... Uh, ostracized him. They wanted nothing to do with him. He was like the lone voice in the wilderness saying, don't trust Hitler. And everybody else, Chamberlain and everybody else was going, oh no, he's not that dangerous. He's not that bad. And then when all hell broke loose, literally, and the war is going at its worst, he becomes the prime minister. But he was accustomed to failure. And he knew that he had to keep pushing on even in the midst of failure. And so do we. And it, of all people groups, it should be us who understand that God uses failure. And one of the things we're going to see this morning is he uses failure to test us. Now, again, I don't like failure. I even less like testing. I hated testing in school. I hated tests. I hated to study them, study for them. I hated to take them. And I always hated the results of them because <laughs> I never studied very hard for them. I hate tests. You hate tests. But God tests us. And it's pretty clear in scripture. So what we have to do is begin to see tests as less an obstacle in life and more of an opportunity. Well, what kind of opportunity? To see God work. 
So these three gentlemen I described, you know, one, two have cancer, one's got a significant um, issue with his heart. Um, neither, none of these guys know the outcome. They don't know what's going to happen, but they're all three trying to see this as an opportunity to watch God work. Now, is that easy? No. Would I wish that on my worst enemy? No. Would I want to go through it? Not in the least. And yet, my prayer for them and their prayer for themselves is that they would see this as an opportunity to watch God work and less as an obstacle. So these roadblocks, these detours, these setbacks that come into our life, whatever they may be, financial, relational, you name it, we need to begin to see them as God-ordained. See, guys, either God is in control or he's not in control. Either he is sovereign or he's not sovereign. So if you get a bad prognosis from your doctor and you begin to question the sovereignty of God, then your God has dramatically changed. Well, actually, he hasn't. Just your perspective of him has changed. He can't be trusted. He's not loving. He's hurtful. He, he's hateful. No, God is still God. God is still in control. You may not understand the circumstance, but you have to begin to see that it is God-ordained. He is not up in heaven and you've heard me say this a million times. There is no point in your life where God is up in heaven wringing his hands and going, what in the heck just happened? How did that happen? How, how did Lyle get colon cancer? How did um, Jim end up with a bad heart valve? How did Reuben get cancer? God's never up in heaven surprised. You know, he, he doesn't turn around one day and go, what how did this happen? When did this take place? No, God's in control. God knows. I'm not saying God causes cancer. I'm not saying God does this to hurt you, harm you, but God is in all control. He could stop it. He could eliminate it completely. And yet, oftentimes he doesn't. So is he in control? Is he sovereign? Or is it a case of really bad divine planning? You ever ask God why? Man, I have. And when, every time you ask God why, I mean, he can handle it. He's a big God. He can handle your why. But it's basically you saying, do you have any idea what you're doing? Do you have any clue what I'm going through right now? Here's the answer to that question every time. Yes, he knows. He's fully aware of what you're going through. He knows the pain. He knows the sorrow. He knows the hurt. He knows the fear. He gets it. He understands it. And he's a great God, and he is completely in control. The question is, do you believe it? Now, if you judge God based on what you think that control should look like, complete healing right here, right now, heal my marriage right here, right now, bring my wife back, she left me, bring her back, I lost my job, give me a better one, making more money. If that's your answer to control, if that's the only way he can prove his providence, his sovereignty, you're going to probably be disappointed more often than not because you can't control how God displays his sovereignty. Not everybody gets healed, right? Not every marriage that goes south comes back together. It's not that God can't. It's not that God won't. But we don't know what God's will for you in that situation really is. So God tests us. He tests us through these things. And so what I want to do is I want to backtrack 
and go further back in the life of the Israelites, all the way back to an event that you're very familiar with, when Charlton Heston led the people across <laughs> the Red Sea, right? You all have seen the movie. You may have even read the book. I don't know. Um, but you've definitely seen the movie, and you know the story. The people of Israel are in captivity for 400 years in Israel. They're the people of God, the chosen people of God, the descendants of Abraham. They're the result of the promise God made to Abraham. Out of you, I will make a great nation. There, there's millions of them literally living in Egypt for 400 years in slavery, and they get delivered by God. We know the story. After 10 plagues, Pharaoh decides to let them go, and they end up at the Red Sea. We know what happens. They walk across on dry land. The army of Pharaoh is annihilated by God. But here's what we miss, and it's chapter 14 of Exodus. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Peteroth between Migdal and the sea. What sea? The Red Sea. Now, stop for a second. What we miss when we read chapter 14 is what it says in chapter 13. Chapter 13 display, or describes them leaving Egypt, and it says they left in martial array. That's kind of how the original Hebrew reads. They left in like an army. Now, there's millions of them. They leave, and they're not only walking out kind of cocky and arrogant because they've defeated, so to speak, the, the Pharaoh and his people. They've been released, but they're rich. Because God caused Pharaoh and the people to give them gold and silver and jewels, and they've lined their pockets with the resources of Egypt because the Egyptians just want them gone. Just go. We'll even pay for your trip. And so they're walking out in martial array, cocky, arrogant, and rich. And God tells them to walk a certain direction in chapter 13. He tells them exactly where to go. They're being led by God. Don't miss that point. And then we read, in the midst of them leaving, God says to Moses, oh, by the way, go back. Don't miss that. He says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp. Where? At the Red Sea. And then it gets worse. Camp at the Red Sea, facing it. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, again, don't miss what's going on here. They've left. They're marching out. They're headed to the promised land. Everything's hunky-dory. It's great. Their pockets are lined. They're free. And then God tells them to turn back and go set up camp in front of the Red Sea. So what's the scenario? Red Sea, can't get across it. Army of Pharaoh bearing down on them. Can't get across the sea, barrier, obstacle, and an army they'll never defeat. Not a good place to be, right? Not a good situation. But they did it. God said do it. They did it. And what happens? Well, Pharaoh draws near with his army, and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. They see him coming with his army, and behold, they greatly feared. They feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's what you do when things don't go well. They cry out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I love how they cry out to the Lord, but they direct it at who? Moses. It sucks to be a leader sometimes, right? Because they vent at you. So they vent at Moses. 
And they ask him these questions. What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you see how they assess the circumstance? See in front of them, army behind them, we're going to die. There is no hope. There is no future. Our God is not great, and they fear greatly. So listen to what Moses says, and you may be very familiar with these verses, but listen to what he says. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, if I were one of the Israelites and Moses said that to me in that circumstance, I would have punched him in the throat. I would have said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You're the one that led us here. Do you have any idea what's going on? Do you not see Pharaoh and his army? Do you not see the sea that we can't get across? Do you not understand that we're going to die here? But he goes on, he says, the Egyptians whom you see today, Pharaoh and his army, you shall never see again. And he was going to be very prophetic. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In the Hebrew, that really reads, you just need to shut up. It really does. You just shut up. And sometimes I feel like God is speaking to me and going, would you just shut up and watch and wait? Watch me work. Quit complaining, quit whining, quit moaning, and just shut up and watch me work. See, obstacle, roadblock, they didn't want to be there, didn't like it, didn't understand it, and yet what did God do? He split the sea, they walked across, and then when the army followed them, they were drowned. Now, you may not believe that story. I do. Why? Because it's in the Bible. I believe the word of God is true. I believe these miracles are true. Why? Because my God's a great God. And so what we know from that story is that the Israelites got off to a great start in the sense that they followed God. They faced an obstacle and it was a test, right? A test. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe me? Because here's what would have happened had they not stopped and stayed. If they had run, what would have happened? They would have all died. But they stayed. And then they walked across on dry land. So let's fast forward. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses has gotten them across the land or to the wilderness. It's 40 years later. They're standing on the edge of the land of promise. They're on the edge of the Jordan waiting to cross over. This is the second time they've been there. They were here 40 years earlier, Moses and the people. But the first generation refused to go into the land because there were giants in the land. It was impossible. Their God was not big enough. And so they decided not to obey God and go in. And God said, by virtue of that fact, you're all going to die in the wilderness. So for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness till that generation died off. Now here they are again, Moses and the next generation. And listen to what he says to them. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. Don't miss that point. What's the blessing that comes with going into the land? Live and multiply. Blessing, fruitfulness, abundance. Go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. Remember, they've been there the second time. They've wandered for 40 years. This generation has watched their parents Aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers die off. Now they're standing at the edge of the, will, of the promised land. And he says, he's led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Now, again, we tend to read past this. 
and test you. So for 40 years, what was going on with this next generation? They were being humbled and they were being tested by God to know what was in your heart. That was the goal, whether or not you would keep his commandments or not. Now, does God benefit from the testing? In other words, does God give us a test to figure out what we're really like? No. God already knows our hearts. The test is for us. The test is for us to see whether we truly trust God. And sometimes these situations come into our life to test us. Well, how did he do that? Well, he goes on, he says, he humbled you. How? He let you hunger. Now think about that. God, the great God, the provider God, let the people grow hungry. And there's all kinds of stories, if you read the book of Exodus, how as they were going through the wilderness, they would come to a place and there was no water. And yet they were led there by God. Well, God, did you not use MAPSCO or you, is your GPS broken? Did you not know there's no water here? Why did you lead the people here? Because there's no water there. So that they would have to trust me. So it could test their hearts to see, do you truly believe I can provide or are you going to complain and moan? Well, what did they do? They complained and moaned. Or he took them to a place where they didn't have food. And what did they do? They complained and moaned. See, he let them hunger. But then what did he do? He fed them with manna. He brought a test into their life. There's no food here. There's no water here. I'll feed you. I'll provide for you. And he says that he might make you know that man does not live by what? By bread alone. This passage is quoted by Jesus. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, are you going to trust what Jesus, or God says, or are you only going to trust what he does? In other words, do I, do I constantly have to prove to you that I am faithful, or are you just going to believe that I am faithful regardless of the circumstances? See, it's interesting as you study their lives, from place to place where they went, they would see something that looked like an obstacle, a detour, a setback, a bad planning on behalf of God, and they would doubt God rather than go, man, he split the Red Sea. He brought water from a rock. He brought manna from heaven, and it laid on the ground, and all we had to do was pick it up. Quail fell out of the sky and fed us. Are we going to believe him and trust him? what he says, not just what he does. See, that's the test. And listen, when he says your clothing didn't wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years, this is significant, guys. For 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. Remember, they, they walked out as slaves. They may have had gold and silver in their pockets, but they probably had like one set of clothes. And there was no Target, no Walmart. They couldn't just pull over and go, well, you know, I need a new pack of underwear. No, they, their clothes lasted. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their feet didn't even swell for 40 years. So he says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. How? By walking in his ways and fearing him. What is Moses doing? This is the second generation standing at the same spot their ancestors had stood 40 years earlier and had refused to go into the land of promise, now it's their turn and he's telling them, do not forget all that God has done for you. Remember he is a faithful God and he will take care of you as you go into the land. All you need to do is walk in his ways, in other words, obey him and fear him. Otherwise, he will discipline you. God expects faithfulness, obedience, 
And if you don't, discipline comes. Why does God do that? Well, he does it to perfect us, to mold us, to make us into the likeness of his son. And we've got to understand that when we see things that we don't like, we don't understand, we would rather not happen, there is a method to God's madness. There is a reason behind the circumstance. You may hate it, you may try to avoid it, run from it, get around it, but God is trying to teach you something about him and also about you so that he might make you more dependent. There's always a purpose behind everything that happens in your life. And it's not just punitive. It's not just pure punishment. You know, when my kids were young and I would punish them, they thought I was the most evil man on earth. Why are you denying me this, Dad? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you spanking me? Why won't you let me have that? Why won't you let me go there, do this, watch this? And I would not let them, and they thought it was all punitive, and they didn't understand that there was a purpose behind it. There was a method to my madness. There was a reason behind what my wife and I were trying to do in their lives. And now that they're all adults and many of them have kids, they get it because they're in the same place now trying to get their kids to understand that I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Do what I say because I have your best in store and at heart. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. See, we don't want punishment from God, even though we often deserve it. We don't like discipline for God, from God, even though we need it. And we fail to see that when he does, it's because he loves us. Everything he does, he does in love. But I don't want it. I dislike it. So what do we do with this? Well, let's fast forward again. Where are we? Book of Judges, chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's the beginning of the story of the book of Judges. And we know from last week that we reach a point where Joshua, the one who eventually led them into the land, right? He took over for Moses. He takes them into the land. They spend about seven years conquering the majority of the people living in the land, the Canaanites. And they've already set up their various portions of land. Each tribe has their own land, and then he dies. And what happens? Another generation. A new generation rises up. What do we know about that generation? They do evil. Evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the scenario. This is the synopsis. This is the outline of the book of Judges. Joshua, the leader, dies. Another generation rises up, and they do evil. Over and over again, repeatedly. So let's look at Judges 2. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now what's going on here? There are some commentators who believe this is a theophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Could be. I don't know one way or the other. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this is an angel, a messenger from God who speaks on behalf of God, as we'll see in the passage. And he appears and he says... I, God, brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. So they're in the land. They've already gotten their allotments of the land. They have defeated many of the enemies in the land. And God reminds them, hey, I'm the guy who brought you from Egypt. I'm the guy that split the Red Sea. I'm the guy that did the 10 plagues. I'm the guy that led you through the wilderness. I'm the guy that got you here. And I'm the guy that gave you the land that you're living in. And then God goes on and says, I will never break my covenant with you. I am a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. But then he says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. This is huge. 
This is so important. What's he telling these people? You will not make covenants, agreements, treaties with the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now, this is not God asking for help. You know, what, 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 what happened? He knows what's happened. This is really a conviction on, for them. I know what you've done. Do you know what you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So what's God telling him? This is incredibly significant because God, the God who just said, I led you from Egypt, I got you across the wilderness, I got you into the land, I defeated Jericho and Ai, and I gave you all this allotment of land that every tribe has, that God is no longer going to go ahead of you. That God, me, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. You're on your own. I'm done. Now think about that. If God ever spoke to you one day, he's never spoken audibly to me. He has most definitely spoken to me through his word. But if I ever got a message from God where he said, you know, from this point forward, Ken, you're on your own, that would get my attention. If he just said, I am done, I'm so tired of you, I'm so sick of your rebellion, your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, your lack of confession, I am done with you, you are on your own, and if you're so in love with the world, have at it. And it's going to be a snare to you. That's what he tells these people. And how do they react? It says, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Now, this sounds really good, right? Man, they're repentant. This is great. Mm, probably not. And they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord there. So they weep. And they actually name the place where they weep the place of weeping. They commemorate the place. This is the place where we cried. Well, that's just great. But did you even mean it? You know, when my youngest son was uh, a kid and he, he got in trouble a lot, um, and he would always say when he got in trouble, when I got ready to discipline him, he would say, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm, I, just, I just stared at him. I mean, that's great, that's great. You're still going to get spanked. And then the tears would start. No, Dad, I'm really sorry. Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm, I, I hope you really are, but you're still going to get spanked. What was he doing? Trying to avoid a spanking. See, I knew my son, and I knew that the I, I'm sorry's and the tears were all fake. And as soon as I let him go, he would go do it again because he had a track record. I, I, I knew him. So he could, play the, he could call the place the place of weeping. And it really wouldn't matter because the weeping was fake. It wasn't real. And so they call this place the place of weeping. But why are they crying? Are they crying because they've repented or because they're remorseful? Well, the book of Judges is pretty clear. They were never repentant at any point, at any time. It's sorrow over getting caught, not sin. There's a huge difference, right? You've seen it in your kids. You've done it either as a child or you've done it as an adult. You've done it with God. God, I'm so sorry. I'll never do this again. And God's up in heaven going, really? I've heard this before. Are you serious? Are you truly repentant? Are you just sorry that you're suffering? 
Well, why are they crying? It's pretty clear because he just told them, I'm not going to drive out your enemies anymore. Now, guess what? They had seen what that looks like when they first went into the land. When God didn't help them with AI and they failed. When God doesn't fight for you, you fail. When God doesn't go before you, you fail. They knew what that looked like and it scared the bejeevers out of them. And so they weep, they cry. And when he tells them that these enemies that you have defeated so far, you will not defeat now because I'm not going to fight for you and they will become thorns in your sides and a snare to you. They're going to become traps to you. Here's a question to consider. What do you have in your life that you have held on to that God told you to let go of that has now become a snare to you, that has become a trap to you? It looks so lovely, so inviting. It looked like something you wanted, even though God said, get rid of it, but you held on to it, and now it has, it has you captive. See, that's what he's warning them. If you don't get rid of the Canaanites you're going to become like the Canaanites. But they weep, they cry, and it's totally insincere, and it's totally insufficient. It's not going to be enough to stave off the discipline of God. I love this from Malachi. The prophet says, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. Why? Because you don't mean what you're saying. You are insincere, insufficient in your repentance. You have no repentance. You're really not willing to change. You just don't want to be punished. You don't want the discipline of God because you think you know what's best. So what we need to understand is Psalm 51, 17, what God wants is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart, a heart that's really willing and wanting to change. It doesn't mean you're always going to change perfectly. You're always going to do everything right, but that you come to him and go, Lord, I don't get it. I know I'm wrong, and I want you to change me. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to hold on to the Canaanites in my life anymore. I want to get rid of them like you told me to. I want to be obedient to you. That's what he's looking for. Paul says in Corinthians, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, insufficient, insincere sorrow lacks repentance and it results in spiritual death. What you're going to see at least seven times in a repeated cycle over and over again in this book is the people failing to repent. Now they're going to cry out over and over again. They're going to be sorrowful but it's not going to be repentant sorrow, godly sorrow. It's going to be worldly sorrow, and it's going to always result in spiritual death, not the blessing of God. So Judges chapter 1. These two chapters, just so you understand, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are synopses of the entire book. They set up the book, but they do it in a different way. I told you last week chapter 2 is actually... Uh, and it comes in chronological order before one. I don't know why the author put them this way. But they just look at the story from a slightly different perspective. So in chapter 1, the author tells us Joshua dies, and the people inquire of the Lord. Things start to look up. If you just read chapter 1 of the book of Judges, you would think, this is going to be a good story. This is going to be great. But if you read chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and on, you find out, It started well, but it didn't end well. 
But it says, the people inquired of the Lord. He dies, the leader's gone, and they ask God, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, the word Canaanite is just an overarching term for all the people in the land, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, all the ites. So they say, who should go up first to fight against them? And they're going to get an answer. But the good part is they've asked God. That's a positive, right? When we ask God, that's a good thing. Ask him what you should do. So the Lord says, Judah shall go up, the tribe of Judah. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So God answers them and says, because you've asked me, I will tell you. Send Judah, and I have given the land into his hand. Now, why is this important? Because we just read in chapter 2, God told them that I'm not going to fight for you anymore. But see, what's interesting, as soon as they turn to him and say, what do you want us to do? He answers them. Because they are dependent, because they came to him asking for help. And he says, okay, I'll help you. Send Judah, and I've already given him the victory. I've already given him the land. And so it goes on and tells us, Judah says to Simeon, his brother, he goes to one of the other tribes, and the two tribes go in together. They fight together, which is a good thing. We need to fight together. He says, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And they do. It says, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Besek. So they immediately have victory. Why? Because God is going before them because they have asked and he has answered. Skip down to verse eight. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem. They captured it. They struck it with the edge of the sword. They set the city on fire. Then they go down and they fight against the Canaanites and the Negev. And we see them having victory after victory. Why? Because God is going before them. God is fighting alongside them. They go to Hebron. They have victory there. They defeat Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And everything looks up. Everything looks great. Verse 18, Judah captures Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. See, that's the way it should be, right? You and I going out, having victory because the Lord is with us. But see, there's a test built into this. Listen to what it says next, verse 19. And he, Judah, took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Ooh, new technology, bigger foe, greater weapons. Giants in the land. What has changed in this scenario from all the other victories? One thing, chariots of iron. Now, this is at the early stages of the Iron Age, and not everybody had these things. Israel most certainly didn't have chariots of iron. They didn't have chariots. And so he sees something that looks like a roadblock, an obstacle, that they aren't going to be able to get across. And so it says, he could not drive out the inhabitants. Is that really the issue, or is it really that he would not? My God's not big enough. And what you see in the rest of this chapter is he starts a pattern. Victory, 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 chariots of iron, God's not big enough. And it says, Judah could not drive out the Canaanites. Then it says, Benjamin did not drive out the Canaanites. Manasseh did not. Ephraim did not, Zebulun did not, Asher did not, Naphtali did not, and then the Amorites pressed Dan out of their own territory. So you see over and over again in chapter 1, the picture of the book of Judges. Could not, could not, could not, did not, would not. 
failure after failure after failure because they didn't believe God and they didn't obey God. And so what's the end result? Verse 28, the Canaanites persisted in the land. The Canaanites lived in Gezer. The Canaanites lived among them. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites. They, they lived among the Canaanites. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and Ajalon and Shelban. So you see the Canaanites aren't gotten rid of. This is all about the Canaanization of Israel. See, the Canaanites were supposed to be removed so that the Israelites could have the land to themselves. But they didn't. They let the Canaanites remain. And this is not what God told them to do. This is not what he wanted for them. And it was going to leave the Canaanites in the land for the rest of their lives. Thorns in their sides and a snare. And it's going to be a huge problem. And that's the whole book. So why is this a big issue? Because again, Deuteronomy chapter 7, back 40 years earlier when Moses was standing there with the other generation, it says, when the Lord brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, and he's very specific, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all these nations who are what? More numerous. There's more of them than you. That's an obstacle. And they're mightier than you. See, God knew these nations were big and mighty, and he knew they had iron chariots. But God didn't bat an eye. He said, don't worry about it. When the Lord, your God, gives them over to you, not if, just when, it's a certain deal, and you defeat them, then you must, here's the covenant, you must devote them to what? Complete destruction. See, what did God tell them to do? Go into the land and defeat all the people with my help and get rid of them, annihilate them, destroy them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't have relationships with them. As a matter of fact, he says, don't make a covenant with them. Show no mercy to them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or their sons to your daughters. For if you do, they're going to turn you away from me and you're going to serve their gods. That's the end result. Unfaithfulness. So he gives them very clear directions long before they got into the land, but they didn't obey. And he warns them, if you do it, I'm going to be angry and I'm going to destroy you quickly, but here's what you're to do. Break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. You are to get rid of every vestige of those nations. Now, why is it important to go in and get rid of all the idols and the high places and all the altars that, where they worship their false gods? That's important. But if you do that and you don't get rid of the Canaanites, what's the problem? They're going to build more altars. So you got to get rid of the people who are worshiping the false gods. The false gods are not the problem. It's the people who worship the false gods. And why is this to take place? Because you're a holy people of the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You are mine. You belong to me. Get rid of the Canaanites. Take over this land which I gave to you and populate it and enjoy it and be fruitful in it. But it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. So what does he do? He sends plunderers. Over and over again, he sends plunderers. That's the book of Judges. Who are the plunderers? The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, all the ites they left in the land. They ended up plundering them. 
and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. They had no help from God. Things looked bleak, but what does God do? Here's the faithfulness of God. Don't miss this. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. Who are these people? These people are not judges like who sit in a dais in a courtroom today. These are avengers. They're vindicators of God. They are sent by God to do the work of God and redeem and save the people of God. And when they disappear off the scene by the end of the book, you find the people are still doing evil. The judges are like a temporary fix. They can't fix the hearts of the people, so they can only lead them for a period of time. Yet God saves them. See, I love this from David Jackman. The judges were given because God loves his people as an expression of his compassion and because he longed for them to return to a close relationship of love with him. They were not a reward given because of the people's work of repentance, but a gift of God's grace. They did not deserve the judges. What they deserved was God just let them go. But see, God's a faithful God. God's a covenant-keeping God. God was going to send these men and this one woman to be agents of his grace redeemers, saviors, to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. But yet they didn't listen to the judges. They continued to turn aside. And it says, whenever the Lord raised up judges, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of all those who afflicted them. But when the judges died, what do they do? They turn back, they do it all over again. And you see this repeated cycle in the book of Judges, at least seven times. And God leaves these nations, these Canaanites and Jebusites and Ammonites and Amorites, he leaves them in the land to test them. Are you ever going to be faithful to me? Are you ever going to obey me? So here's the cycle we're going to see over and over again in the next weeks. The people sin against God. He brings in the plunderers. They suffer as a result. They cry out in sorrow to God. God sends salvation in the form of a judge. And then what do they do? They sin again. Now, if you look at that and go, man, those are some stupid people. You are being dishonest, not only with me, but with yourself. This is us. This is how we live our lives. Sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation over and over again, waiting for God to redeem us out of the messes that we make of our own lives. But see, God had told them this is what's going to happen. Chapter 3, verse 3. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites. All these people are, are going to be there for a test to see if you really know me and are you going to obey me. So the question you and I have to face is, are we going to live like the Canaanites or are we going to live like the people of God? Living as we've been called to live, living set apart, living holy lives. And again, guys, I'm not telling you that you need to pray for God to get rid of all the Democrats or the Republicans, depending on your stripe, or whatever people group you can't stand. Muslims, you know, if we, if we wrote down all our, our hatreds and all our things that we despise. And we said, that's the enemies. I got to get rid of the Canaanites. No, it's the Canaanite in your heart. That's the problem. It's the sin in your own life that you hang on to. So first question, what, what are some of the ways in which we become Canaanized as modern day children of God? What have we left in our lives that God said to get rid of? And what does that look like? 
How does God test our devotion and dedication? What does he allow to come into our lives that tests whether we truly love him or do we love that more? See, sometimes God brings blessing into our life, money, houses, cars, wonderful wife, wonderful kids, and they become a test of our devotion to God. Do we love those things more than we love him? Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. What's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? And which, which do you practice more? Finally, according to 1 John 1, 8 through 10, why is confession of sins so important? What are the potential ramifications if we don't? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But why do we find confession so hard? And what happens when we fail to confess? See, sometimes we think when we confess, we're telling God something he doesn't know. Here's, a, here's, here's some news. He already knows. Confession is for your benefit, not his. And confession always follows conviction. So if you've been convicted of a sin and you fail to confess that sin, and confession is nothing more than going, I agree with the conviction. You're right. I was wrong. I confess it. That's all it is. And if you refuse to do that, you're calling God a liar. You're refusing to take that conviction given to you by the Holy Spirit, and you move on in your sin unconfessed, and there are deep, deep ramifications for that. Well, Father, I pray for the men this morning as they talk around the tables that you would bless their conversations, you would open up their hearts, that they would share from the heart, that they would listen with love and grace and mercy, that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with one another because, Father, you already know our hearts. We're not telling you anything, but, Father, may we help each other see the reality that we can become Canaanized. We have become Canaanized. We have fallen in love with this world. We have made treaties with this world. We have made alliances with this world. We like this world. We love the things of this world. And we have been pulled away from you so often. Bring us back. That, Father, we may truly be your people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, set apart, living differently in the midst of all that surrounds us. Lord, I love these guys, and I pray that they would fall deeper and deeper in love with you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have fun.